this week we'll talk about hiring data professionals and we have a special guest today, Alicia. Alicia worked for almost six years at Zalanda as a recruiter with focus on hiring data scientists. I think in Zalanda it's called applied scientists. At some point you renamed this, but it was uh, research scientists, data scientists. You had a bunch of uh, data professionals. So I actually met Alicia during a recruitment process as well. So she was uh, trying to hire me multiple times. <laughs> and uh, even though Alicia no longer works at Zalanda, and uh, I think you, maybe you'll tell us a bit more about that. Mm -hmm. You don't focus on data professionals specifically anymore. But when I was thinking who to invite to this interview, who to, to talk to about hiring data professionals, I couldn't think of a better candidate. So welcome, welcome to our event. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So before we go into our main topic of hiring data people, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah. So I started over 10 years ago in recruitment and like most of the people, I kind of fell into it. I started working in a recruitment agency, very small one, and then I moved on in-house. So I became like a, not a headhunter, but part of an internal recruitment team at Google, where I spent two years hiring site reliability engineers, which was quite challenging. And after that, I decided to move to Berlin and I joined Zalando. I first joined actually as a sourcer, then I became this recruiter. And the last couple of years, I was also leading a team of recruiters who were recruiting data professionals and also product designers. So that was yeah my journey so far. Yeah. And what do you do now? Yeah, and right now I am part of We Are Keen, uh, which is an embedded talent agency. So I kind of went to the other side. What we do is we go into companies, we help them scale their tech teams, kind of embedded. So, you know, do the usual things that internal team would do. And yeah, we do this in Berlin as well as in Amsterdam, but really like operating globally these days. So with remote work. So not just data folks, but any tech professionals. Yeah tech focused at the moment. Yeah. So I'm kind of uh, in the role of a client lead also, where it's a bit more on a strategic level, doing project management and helping and advising, consulting different companies and clients. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thanks. So probably we'll be more talking more about the work you were doing at Zalanda, but I guess the process looks similar, not just for data folks, but for usual tech uh, professionals as well. So I'm curious, what does uh, the hiring process look like? What are the typical steps in the process? So, yeah, a lot of the times, of course, the process overall will depend on the company. But typically what I see, especially in tech and, and for data science, there is some sort of recruiter interview, usually as a first one. Not always, but typically. And then there is a technical screening, like usually one interview, one hour long with a data science interviewer. So that's much more technical. And then there is like a final round of used to be physical on-site interviews that were actually, that's why we call them on-sites, but um, now they're mostly virtual due to the current situation. And in that final round, typically it, it again, depends on the company. It could be anything from three or two to, to five or seven interviews. So again, depends on the company and how big they are also. Then sometimes this process may not be as organized or as structured but yeah, after that, obviously there is the decision round and then a final kind of decision. Mm -hmm. And I guess even before that, the process also involves sourcing candidates or doing uh, CV screening, right? So this is where the process starts, right? Oh, yes, of course. When I talk the process, I guess I just kind of explain the recruitment or like interviewing process. But of course, before that we even get into that stage, there's a lot of 
stuff that has to happen beforehand. So first, of course, we need to have candidates who are willing to go for those interviews, especially when it comes to data professionals that could take a while. And then, of course, after the interviews, there is another stage where, you know, the decision is made. And if the decision is positive, like we want to hire someone, we need to make an offer. We need to talk about, you know, the conditions and come up with a contract and then onboard by the person. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of work. Yes. And what do you do in this process? What is your role in this process? Yeah, um, so the role starts whenever there is a need. So there is a demand and obviously also the budget to hire someone like a data scientist or data engineer, typically a hiring manager. So this is this could be anyone, could be engineering manager, could be a data science manager, but someone in the team who can hire and who wants to hire would contact the recruitment team or myself directly and say like, I want to hire a data scientist. Can you help me? So that's where it starts. And this is where we kind of have an initial meeting with that person to establish what they're really looking for, to come up with their job description. In during this process, we would try to establish, you know, why, why do we need this person? You know, why are we hiring externally? And do they really need all of the skills that are mentioned? Because sometimes, you know, there are certain expectations, but they're not always what is available on the market. Talent market is super tough when it comes to hiring data professionals. It's not easy. There's high competition. So it's also a kind of, in a way, negotiation sometimes with the hiring managers, depending on the hiring manager as to like what realistically is possible and what is not. Going through the job description, making sure it's attractive, that people will actually want to apply to it and deciding what the interview process will be, who will be the interviewers that will take part, what kind of interviews we have to absolutely do and which ones maybe we could, we could omit. And if there is flexibility on that, of course, so yeah, very kind of nitty-gritty practicalities as well about, you know, everything. At which point the hiring manager will talk to the people who will talk to, to the candidates. Yeah, so that's quite a lot of things. So that's where it starts, yes. And of course, then there is a part where there's twofold. So with hiring data professionals, I think in tech in general, it's very competitive market, but more so from my experience when it comes to data scientists or data engineers. We do obviously post the positions. Typically, every recruiter would always, you know, post the open position. But the the number of applicants or who applies isn't always aligned, and this is where we can't rely on that because we would probably never hire them. And this is where sourcing comes in. So, as a recruiter, a lot of the recruiters do both. Some companies uh, have separate sourcing teams where there's people who just source candidates and they don't even interview them. What I did actually in the beginning of my journey at Zalando was I started as a sourcer for data science, and then I became a recruiter for data science. So yeah, so it goes down to actually actively approaching candidates or people who wouldn't apply because they don't have to, because they get messages on LinkedIn and they may be happy in their jobs and they don't even think about applying. So this is where uh, sourcing is often a big part when it comes to hiring data professionals. So yes, yeah, so it's quite a long journey. So uh, let's say, yeah, we post a job. We then also at this simultaneously, typically we source for candidates. So we start reaching out to them on LinkedIn, but only any other ways that a sourcer can find. You might have experienced this yourself. Sometimes even Facebook, Twitter, uh, Reddit. I mean, there are so many GitHub, maybe not so much for data professionals, more so for software engineers, but any ways we can find and get in touch with, with people we think are right. Even Reddit, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I personally haven't done that, to be honest. But I know some sorcerers who really like kind of uh, quite geeky and they, they like to come up with new ways. So I'm not sure how they do this. 
But yeah. So if you want to get hired, <laughs> go to Reddit and post stuff there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, interesting. many, many different ways. Also, like looking at university alumni. So mm -hmm. especially for data professionals, if we are looking for people who need to have certain level, like PhDs, looking at, you know, the alumni of universities, looking at conferences. So when I source for data science, I looked at that a lot, the machine learning conferences and the papers that were submitted. So yeah, sourcing is a big part and it takes a while. It's a long-term also kind of strategy of trying to hire data professionals. And this then also comes along with partnering with the hiring manager. So at this point, you know, depends on the sourcer, like if there is someone who's just starting as a sourcer or not yet fully understands what they are looking for, because, you know, we recruiters are not technical people. We don't have computer science degrees. It takes also for us a while to understand what, what is the right profile. So then we typically partner with the hiring manager or interviewers or people in the team or other data scientists within the company to understand, you know, the right type of profiles, those who apply and the ones I reach out to. And then hopefully we do have some candidates and we, you know, put them through the process. So I would start with, with the recruiter interview, spend some time discussing people's motivations and also practicalities of what they will be looking for. And then, you know, we go through the stages. So as a recruiter, I would take that candidate through all the stages. So starting from the recruiter interview, then technical screening, then the on-site interviews. And as we go providing feedback from those interviews and then up to the offer, including making them an offer. So that's like kind of end-to-end -end recruitment or sometimes we call it 360 recruiters because there are recruiters who don't do the whole part as well, but more so, I think more often these days, it's just you do everything. So you also then make the offer to the candidate. And I think that's something what also me as a recruiter, I enjoyed, right? Like being able to, to go through this journey with someone and at the end, make them an offer and hopefully they accept it, which is even nicer. <laughs> so making an offer and then, yeah, making sure that if they accept it, they also get their contracts. Okay, so that's, that's a lot of work. So you've mentioned quite a few interesting things that I wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. So first I wanted to ask about, well, apart from Reddit, so Reddit uh, thing was quite interesting. But what got my attention is you mentioned that when a hiring manager comes to you saying, I want to, to hire a data scientist or applied scientist, you uh, first uh, kind of negotiate with them what is realistically possible. So does it often happen when they come with a profile that doesn't exist and you have to manage their expectations? Yes, that's a part of the challenge. It's also why I actually particularly, as I said to you, you know, when you first reached out to me, that like I don't no longer recruit for data science, but it's all very close to my heart because in the very beginning of my career, like as a sourcer, it's a land of for data science. At the first six months, I think I was not able to make a hire. And for a recruiter, actually, and this is important fact to know when you are a candidate, because to understand that recruiters are there to make hires, which means that actually they are in a way on your side because they want you to sign that contract. So they will do everything possible to make sure, obviously within the ethics of the, the job, but they will, you know, we will do anything possible to, to make sure you sign it and you are happy in your job. So for me, it was like in the first six months, I think I didn't make any hires. I wasn't able to find anyone. And this was kind of quite a challenge. So yeah, a, a big part usually is the, the expectations that some hiring managers have. I think to say that over time and later on down the line, I was very lucky to have very good hiring managers at Zalando who really understood the market. And like over time, we were able to build these relationships. There was an understanding that if some 
if you know the hiring manager coming to me saying like i need free principal data scientists okay good luck right <laughs> <laughs> that's what i would say i was like that's very funny <laughs> but i was comfortable to say that of course because i knew that they understand that this is not going to happen in the next month and i would typically say that yeah it's going to be minimum six to nine months before we hire the first one so this is uh very often the thing and i think Sometimes it's because the maybe hiring managers not necessarily have the data science background themselves. It could be that they're engineering managers, so they have software engineering background, but they need to hire data scientists for their teams. And then this is where I would need to, you know, as a recruiter, provide them more advice and give them insights of the market and what are the profiles that are available and what is realistic. And oftentimes they would understand that and that would be fine. And we would agree on, okay, what are the, the must-haves and what we can compromise on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and so you have this information. You can say, okay, finding this kind of experience, like I don't know, just uh, experience with Kubernetes. Maybe it's very difficult to find in data science profiles, right? And then if the hiring manager really insists on having this profile, you will need to say that, okay, you know that it severely reduces the number of candidates you would have for this position. So this is the process with data, okay. obviously. Ah, you have the data for that as well. You have to, especially in tech recruitment, but especially when dealing with data scientists, I've noticed like, this is the thing, you just need to have the data to show them. And that's the, the easiest way to convince someone. It's not about, you know, the feelings or like what I, what my gut feeling, you know, what it is, but yeah, you, you know, as a resourcer, also like a recruiter, you are able to gather this data. LinkedIn also has the tool like market insights. So a lot of recruiters have access to that. Some of us don't. So then you have to be a bit more creative, but you can show them like at least roughly like, okay, this is how the market looks like so if you then you know the more must haves you add the more tight or narrow the funnel is or the available talent and that helps to drive the conversation mm-hmm. interesting and uh, another thing you mentioned is uh, then you work with the hiring manager to make sure that the position the job description looks attractive and uh, how do you do this like by carefully picking the words or how exactly that works yeah so i think I mean, for me, always it was the case, like I wouldn't write the job description myself because I don't know what specific AI tools or methods in machine learning have to be there and how to word it. So it actually makes sense to someone reading it who is a data scientist. So I would always first ask them to draft like a job description. We would have some format that has to be followed, but yeah. And then just checking that the wording makes sense. But it's also about like understanding that not just putting the right buzzwords, but being able to like really show, I think, what the person will be doing. And I think what I found out when I was, you know, going through and sourcing as well as like working with hiring managers is that data scientists or data professionals like to know what problems they will be solving. And it's about like, they get excited about the problems. So being able to write a job description that focuses on that, this is actually the problem we have right now, and you'll be part of the team who is trying to solve it, that's what gets people's attention and excitement and not just saying, oh yeah, we have those perks and benefits like free lunches or coffee. Like, yes, it's great, but you know, it's not as exciting in that sense. Free lunches are good as well. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when it comes to making a decision to switch jobs. That's not enough, right? Doesn't like flip the scales. Yeah. Another part of actually writing job descriptions, this is something that is maybe more recent, is that there are some tools that, which are actually AI-driven tools that allow us to go through the job description. So they would go through the job description and tell us like, okay, what kind of audience this job description will attract. And right now, there, as you might be aware, 
there is a big conversation about having more inclusion and diversity in tech, especially. And when it comes to gender diversity, for instance, there are certain tools that are able to tell us like, okay, this job description that you've just written is really speaking loud to men or people who identify as men more so than women. So if you're actually trying to balance out your team a little bit, maybe you should change a few words. And it gives you like an indication of what kind of words you can swap. And yeah, that is AI or machine learning driven, which is quite interesting and can be helpful also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I also used this to, I don't remember the exact uh, examples, but it would say this phrase will appear more to male candidates. If you want to be more inclusive, consider changing it, and then it gives a couple of suggestions. Yeah, it makes it more neutral. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so when it comes to sourcing, so you now posted it, uh, so you negotiated the requirements with the hiring manager, you made an attractive job description, now you go live with this description, people start applying, but you also mentioned that it's not enough, you also need to actively reach out to people. Um, go to Twitter, Reddit, GitHub, or LinkedIn, I guess, obviously, and write people saying, hey, we have this amazing job description, how about having a chat? So how, in this case, do you select uh, profiles? What does pick your attention here? Well, typically, to be honest, I mean, there's many tools you can go through, but I think LinkedIn is a good starting point, usually because you can at least get an idea of who's available. And it has also quite interesting filters. So I can filter out for years of experience, for instance, or degree levels and things like that, and then putting Boolean strings of keywords. So it's quite good in that respect. So that would be like a starting point. Yeah, what I would do is I would look at profiles that match the initial keywords or the job description that I have in front of me or the based on the discussion that I had with the hiring manager the most. So I think, you know, I would first like try to narrow it down. Yeah, to like whatever is like the ideal case scenario, right? So I know where those people, who they are. And then, you know, verified it with the hiring manager to see like, okay, these are the initial results. Like I haven't reached out to yet to those people, but like, what do you think? Is this profile correct? Because again, like if I'm starting, I might not really know. So what stands out, I think, when looking at LinkedIn and sourcing is the experience itself, but also education. So like I think this is kind of something that has, has to be balanced when looking for data science people or data professionals. Often the degree, like PhD or at least master's, is like a, a must. Not always, but that would be something I would look at as opposed to, for instance, if I was looking for software engineers, that doesn't necessarily wouldn't be the case. But when, when it comes to data science, yes, often it would be a requirement. So I had to look at what kind of degree it is. Is it computer science? Is it physics? Is it biology? Whatever it is. And to check if this is okay and balance it also with the amount of experience and what that person did, not just the years of experience, but what they write in their responsibility. So like, I think the worst scenario for a sourcer is like having a LinkedIn profile of someone, which is like a skeleton profile where there is just like a company they work for and the title, but nothing in the description of the tasks or responsibilities that they do. Or sometimes people just put the description of what the company does. I'm like, I know what this company does. I already researched them. Like, thank you very much. I wish to know what you are actually doing there. Of course, I think some people do it on purpose because maybe they don't want to be contacted by recruiters. I understand that. And then I have to judge if this is kind of something I still want to do or not. But then that also means my message to that person is not going to be very personal because I really don't know. So it's more like a stab in the dark. 
But yeah, looking at exact responsibilities, what this person did themselves, not just like the team, what the team was focusing on, but themselves, did they build those machine learning algorithms and models from scratch or not? And then combining that with looking at the degree and obviously the keywords, yes, as a recruiter, that's what I can rely on, like really those things. I can't read a paper that someone wrote for their PhD and understand it. Often I don't, sometimes maybe like the summary in the beginning, but you know, like very vaguely. So yeah, there's very few things and not always getting it right. Do you remember what kind of keywords you were putting there? Like, let's say if you were to look for a data scientist right now, what kind of keywords you would put in the search tool? Yeah, machine learning or AI or data science. Well, not data science. I would say machine learning or AI or ML. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and I'll continue with my string in terms of ORs, like deep learning or uh, a few other like known, maybe or a bit more popular algorithms. But that, that also then depends on the job description, because if we are looking for a computer vision specialist, for instance, with deep learning skills, then yes, those I would put, but maybe I wouldn't put some other mathematical models and things in there. So you take this from the job description, right? And put... Exactly, yeah. Oh, that would be my starting point. Like the must-haves, what are the three or, you know, four like must-haves? And I would just put it in the string. So sometimes it would give a very broad pool, but then I would narrow it down with the degrees and, you know, the level of experience. Mm -hmm. How important do you think is having uh, a master's degree? So let's say somebody has only bachelor degree uh, a level of litigation, or maybe they don't uh, have any degree at all. How important it is? I'm not really sure if there's that much difference between bachelor's and master's. I feel like there was always a bit more distinction if there was a requirement coming from the hiring managers about like, do they need to have a PhD or not? Mm -hmm. And if it was not, then it wasn't specifically like, oh, that means they have to have master's. It was more like it could be bachelor's or master's. Mm -hmm. But I think this distinction between master's and PhD, sometimes that is important. So sometimes it was really a must, but then it was, for instance, for a team that was very research heavy team, where maybe they weren't working on specific product that there was a research lab, for instance, and within uh, Zalando, but they didn't work on a specific product and delivering that but they needed to have a PhD and, and, and papers. That was the point of the team, mm -hmm. let's say, uh, in a very high level from recruiter perspective. And I don't mm -hmm. want to like undermine that. But then for other teams that maybe, you know, they didn't really need that. Like we don't need people who have PhDs or even masters. We do want them to, of course, have solid education in terms of like they understand the maps behind some of the tools they are using and algorithms, but they don't have to have masters. That was often also a thing or something we discussed, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, I prepared a couple of questions about CV screening, and I think mm -hmm. we covered that partly because I assume the process for you of looking at LinkedIn profile is similar to looking at a CV that you get when somebody applies. Is it similar? You, you mentioned for a LinkedIn profile, you look for exact responsibilities, what exactly the person did, right? I think this is still important for a CV, right? What else is important for a CV? Yeah. I mean, how do you look at a, a CV of an applicant? to decide if you want to continue talking with this candidate or you want to not continue? Yeah, I think CV is slightly only different in the sense that in LinkedIn, there is a certain format. So typically you would see the experience and the role responsibilities first, after of course the name and the picture. And in the CV, sometimes I've noticed like people would put maybe their education first. For me, I think Working for like an in-house recruiter for a company that needed typically mostly senior people, meaning 
senior, not in terms of age, of course, but they experience, let's put it that way, maybe that's a better word. Then that would be the first thing I would look at. And then secondly, at the education. So my advice actually here is like, of course, it depends. If you are like a recent graduate who doesn't have much experience, maybe it is better to put the education to highlight that as a first point. But I think experience typically beats most of that. Even if it's just six months internship, I would already like put that on top of the CV because that that's where I would look at. But yeah, it's very similar. So it's like looking at experience and the education. And again, with the CVs, I would often also see that, that there will be title and there will be a list of responsibilities, but it will be very vague. Or sometimes people put like a list of tools, but it's just like a list of tools and I'm not really sure like what did they do with them? Like how often did they work with them? I have no clue. Like so, and sometimes I see also on CVs and maybe not so much on LinkedIn, but that could also be the case that people do put a lot of those buzzwords and that can be very confusing. It used to be very confusing for me because then I was like, okay, well, this person mentions all of the, the things that I have in a job description. So it looks fine, but then I would, would turn out actually they wouldn't be able to pass the first interview. And I, it was like, okay, like, did I do something wrong? Maybe I should have explained, but, but I was also lucky enough to have a lot of really, like I built some network within, within Zalando of data scientists who are very, very helpful. I remember specifically Mikio Brown, who I think was on your podcast some time ago. He yeah, would sit with me in my very first year, I think as a sorcerer every week, I think for an hour, maybe even just screening the CVs because like I had no clue what I was doing. I was like, look, it's, so I'm going to be six months. I'm not sure if I'm going to pass my probation here because I haven't made any hires. So that was very helpful as, as well for me to see like how he looks at the CVs from the perspective of someone who actually does the job. And that was very helpful because I learned to read between the lines or learned to read beyond just someone putting the buzzwords because sometimes people would put the buzzwords, but there would be nothing else or they could be the opposite they wouldn't actually really showcase and highlight what they did and then you could miss out because maybe you will get rejected just because you didn't put something in your in your city so yeah mm -hmm. so what can people do to make uh, their cvs more attractive so first thing you said uh, you should move education down and put prioritize work experience what else can candidates do to be more successful at this stage be very clear about the responsibilities and what you did in your current job and your previous jobs, as opposed to what the team did. Of course, I, I don't mean like, no, don't give credit to the team and don't like, you know, own up to things that didn't do on your own. But I think do highlight like what was your part in that team effort? Because at the end of the day, that's also like, yeah, what we need to know. And that really helps a lot. And it helps a lot also with driving for the interviewers further down the line, because then they can ask you more informed questions and avoid asking you questions that are totally irrelevant, which you probably like be also confused about. So yeah, be very specific about your tasks and the responsibilities, what you accomplished, like the things you did. And if that was part of the team effort, of course, also mention that, but this is important more so than the title, I think, because title is so confusing. And this was also a big part of confusion when I started as a data science sourcer like six years ago. The title was like could mean anything data scientist was like it could be anyone anyone but yeah yeah not many things changed since i was then. hoping I, I i thought it was got a little bit better it's converging a little bit but still like it's not always you really have to look into the responsibilities to understand ah okay this is the kind of data scientist you mean yeah so not uh, straightforward yeah so responsibilities 
uh, just to answer your question shortly, because I don't want to like, of course, go over time, but um, yeah, responsibilities being very clear also like at the month and the year, not just year to year, because that could be a year, one, 12 months difference sometimes. And, you know, practical things like making sure you, there's no typos, but I think that's kind of quite obvious. And if I could <laughs> offer my opinion, which is like opinion, not necessarily, or my preference, but I do have a lot of recruiting colleagues who also do mention that there is this Europass format of CVs is horrible. Very, very difficult to read. I have no idea where is what. And I think it's like EU somehow, I'm not sure. But yeah, it's something I would avoid. And oh, one thing I do want to also mention to avoid, because I know in Germany in particular, it's a kind of more of a, I guess, tradition that you put your photo on the CV. In some countries, not just Germany, I, I've seen this, that you add your photo. And I know that in some more traditional companies, this is required. So you actually have to add your photo. But what I see, like the trends I see now, and like what I think is more beneficial to people applying is to not attach the photo and don't put your date of birth Things like that. This is because we are all biased and it's unconscious bias. So I'm not like, you know, intentionally, but like when you see a photo first, immediately you have, you start forming assumptions in your brain without knowing it. And that also helps you then as a candidate to, to reduce that bias and hopefully, you know, be more successful. So I would say, of course, you have to judge for yourself. As I said, for some companies, they will require that and that's fine. But I think for a lot of maybe smaller companies, startups or like, tech companies, I would avoid adding your, your photo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. And so now you look at the CV, you decide to move forward with a candidate, and the next step is an interview with a recruiter with you, right? So how does it look like? What do you talk about there? I mean, my interviews, I think, were quite short, <laughs> but the, every recruiter does it differently. But typically, you know, recruiters are not going to ask technical questions. We can't. And we did try at some point in the very beginning at Zalando to come up with very like short and screening questions on like very like basics of machine learning that I could ask and verify the answer, like kind of ABC answer. And everyone was passing them. So, <laughs> so I decided like this doesn't make any sense. So my focus would be the soft skills, so-called soft skills. So more about, you know, what the person has been doing. Uh, sometimes there are some things in the CV, like gaps in the CV that I would like to clarify. Or if the CV is a bit more generic, then I would ask like, what were actually your responsibilities and accomplishments in your current or previous jobs? You know, if the PhD is important, like what was it about? And I would sometimes ask, like, can you explain it to me, uh, someone who is not technical? Because... For data scientists, I think maybe not so much for less experience, but for the more kind of senior, sometimes it's not just about the technical ability and skills. It's also about being able to explain those complex concepts to people who have no idea about machine learning, to be able to convince them sometimes that, you know, this is not a realistic solution that you have in mind and we can't do that. So I would like test it on myself. So like, can you explain to me what you did in your PhD in words that I can understand? And that I really liked because I also learned quite a lot and I learned actually to really like, like data science and talking to, to people who do that because it's really fascinating. But yeah, I would ask questions, typically like behavioral questions as well. So if you can give me an example of a situation when you had to work with a difficult stakeholder, why was it difficult? And this, I think, could be difficult because uh, I would see that like, a lot of people answer in a very general or hypothetical scenarios. So it's more about, okay, like give me an actual example from the past and walk me through like your actions. 
And what did you do in that situation specifically? And what was the outcome? So yeah, these are called like behavioral questions because we ask, we want to check for the behaviors. We want to see if the person will fit with the culture of the company and the values that the company has. So that's why we ask them. And then the practical questions at the end, I typically ask about your notice period, if you're currently employed. So like how soon you could start if you, you know, decided to join us. And then obviously salary. So what are your expectations? And also, yeah, how actively you are interviewing with your currently, because that would be the thing, like I might be sourcing people who are passive, but then so are 15 other recruiters and sources from other companies. And you end up, you know, sometimes I speak to them in the very beginning of the process, but at the end, they already have other offers on the table. So I wanted to verify it in the very beginning, like how advanced you are in those stages, because there is still a process to happen. So how much time we have left. So those will be like practical questions. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to salary expectation questions, I heard this advice. Mm-hmm. The advice is never tell the number first. So when somebody asks you, let's say I'm a data scientist, you're a recruiter, we are having this initial screening and you ask me, what are your salary expectations? And if I follow this advice, then I would say, hmm, no, I will not tell you. Tell me what is the salary range. And then the recruiter would say, hmm, but we want to base, uh, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and then uh, they start this ping pong. So what do you think about this advice? Like, is it uh, good advice? Should people follow this? It depends. But what I would do before answering this, so like first I would actually say, it can be super helpful to know the expectations. So I would still ask this, but I would say, don't necessarily say what your current salary is. And this is something I follow myself. So when I was interviewing recently for a new job, I made it a point of not answering that question. And it's absolutely fine not to say what your current salary is. And it's no one's business. Also, like your future employer, I think in most of European countries, at least, won't be able to check. And if you say some number and it's not true, like they they won't be able to check that and they shouldn't. It's personal data. So ignore that question or just like say, look, I'm just something that I'm willing to share. Because sometimes recruiters are told that this is the question you have to ask. And they will ask you this, but just know you don't have to answer that. When it comes to the expectations, though, that's a bit more tricky because we want to know if this is like, if your expectations are totally off, and I mean by that like 20,000 off in terms of like the annual number, then probably we shouldn't be wasting your time, right? And, And the recruiter or the company's time. And this is tricky and it depends because it depends on the company. So there are, I know that there are some companies and I speak to candidates every day. There are some companies that, the structure internally is based is that if you interview them, it depends on how good you are negotiating. So if you're not good at negotiating, you will get whatever you ask for in the beginning. And that's it. And someone told me like, yeah, they gave me the salary. And I learned later that my colleague in the same level earns this amount more. And when I told this to them, they were like, well, yeah, you should have negotiated better. And some companies still do that. I think typically maybe smaller companies So that's why it's good to actually ask, how does your salary structure works? How does the leveling and structure work in this company before I answer this question? Because if it is the type of company where they just like, it all depends on how well you interview and what you ask for, then yeah, don't tell them your expectations. (laughs) You know, like I'll be honest, don't. Mm -hmm. But you know, in a lot of companies, like the bigger ones, there is leveling. And that means that also to that level, to every level, whether it's junior, mid-level, senior and, and above, there is attached a band. And that means that often, like I say this actually to candidates right away. I'm like, no matter what you're gonna say, even if the number is very low, I will tell you what our band is. But just so you know, just because you ask for a lower amount, 
we're not going to give you that amount. We will still put you on that range if we feel like you are truly a senior or a mid-level. Because, yeah, it will be very unfair. And I think a lot of companies try to avoid that because it is unfair. Because it leads to a lot of weird, you know, atmosphere between team members. Not a good thing that later on down the line in long term. So, yeah, if it's a company that has established uh, ranges and also leveling, and they, then I think it's okay for you to share. And you don't have to actually say specific number, you can give them a range and that's already sometimes good enough. And also what you can say is that this is my initial estimate, what I want, but this may change because I'm interviewing with two other companies or this company, and I will also do my research. This is sometimes what people also tell me. They say like, okay, well, I thought about this number, but actually two weeks later, they maybe got an offer that's higher than this. And now it's changed. And that's also fine. Like this is life, right? So as a recruiter, we we expect that. We expect that this is not set in stone. I'm not going to hold you to this at the end. And like a month later, turn on and say like, oh, but you said this and this is wrong. Well, I mean, in the data science recruitment market, it would be weird for me to expect that, you know, people will not have other offers. I mean, of course, it depends. Sometimes if you are just a graduate, you, you probably it's harder to find a job, but people change their minds and like, you know, expectations change and that's fine. As, as long as you're open about it from the beginning. So say that in the beginning that this may change and keep the recruiter posted. This is, that's all we want. Like, just so you let us know. So we can counteract and try to, you know, still maybe do something about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, you mentioned if I, uh, let's say, well, I'm having this conversation with a recruiter and then I give a number that is quite high and then we see, okay, there is no way we can match this ask with what we have. But maybe the reason I told this high number is because I have no idea how much to ask and then I just mm-hmm. pick a random big number and then say it. So what are the dangers here? So the danger is one, the company might decide not to continue, right? Yeah. So, well, if someone did that, like, so they gave me a number, it was very high. I would ask them, okay, like, can I ask you, like, what did you base it on? Because sometimes people, as you said, they have no clue. They just like, just throw a number, but sometimes people like look, go on Glassdoor. So Glassdoor also allows you to like, see like salaries of people from the state company you are interviewing it. There are like a few other tools. Some candidates recently sent me where you can check salaries, uh, like, you know, globally for many different companies. And from there, you can already gather some sort of a range, you know? But yeah, sometimes people base it on essentially the fact that they see salaries being posted on Glassdoor or other sources, and that's a bit more informed. But yeah, if it's like just stab in the dark and it's very high, I would ask them like, oh, is it based on other offers that you already received before? Or is it based on just, yeah, anything? I would still try to somehow figure out if we can move forward, because as I said, as a recruiter, I really want to hire people. But, you know, if someone says like, no, 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 this is like a must and I'm not, that's it. Like, then yeah, the danger is that we would just have to say, okay, then I guess it doesn't make sense to move forward with the process. But I have to say, yeah, if it's a very, very big gap, but I don't even come across, to be honest, these days very often with people having a very wide expectations very, very like big gap. Usually sometimes it could be like, you know, maybe a couple of thousand in a a kind of annual amount. And then sometimes it could be outside of the range for that level, but that could mean that, okay, maybe we can discuss with the hiring manager and find another way to compensate for that. You know, there, there are those ways. And I think every recruiter would try if it's possible, but 
if they tell you it's not, then it's probably true. <laughs> okay, thank you. I see that we have quite a few questions. So I think it's time okay. we try to cover them. So the first question from Amen is uh, how career changers get in the eye of a recruiter. Mm. So what would be your advice to people who are changing their careers? Let's say they want to get to Zalando or some other company you're, you're hiring for. So what advice would you give to them? Yeah, I think this is quite tough also because I know that a lot of companies want people to have a like, specific degree, even if it's bachelor's, but from a university and like in computer science. And then if you come from a different background and you're changing careers from something not even tech related, it's really challenging. And I, I did see a lot of people actually also do that. So like do some of the courses of Coursera and, you know, then try to swap. But I think it, it is very difficult because there is experience is what matters the most. And unfortunately, yeah, that's difficult. I would say try to gather experience, even if it's like, as I said, an internship, apprenticeship, unpaid. Again, like this is something that is, uh, I hope will change. But for many people, it's not easy to just, you know, do an internship that is unpaid for six months because you have bills to pay. <laughs> So that's a difficulty that I totally understand. But I, if I can give advice, another advice I would give though is try to network as much as possible with people who are data scientists in those companies. And yeah, whether it's meetups, you know, or any kind of communities you can find, but also do connect with recruiters on LinkedIn because there's a lot of recruiters who are in-house recruiters and, you know, maybe they work for those companies, but the companies are not really willing to, to look at people who career changers. But then there are also headhunters from recruitment agencies who maybe they typically have work with many different clients, actually. So they will work with many different companies and then they kind of have a wider net and they know maybe there are some opportunities somewhere. So the more recruiters you also connect with, the better. And then, of course, making sure your LinkedIn profile is kind of as clear as possible and you list everything and any kind of practical experience you had is there and you know explained kind of clearly what you've did during that but yeah it's a tough thing especially when it comes to data science hiring i've seen a lot of the hiring managers saying that we need people with five years of experience at least and it has to be from like a similar company working on a product in a product team you know sometimes not realistic yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. What do you think about the importance of uh, cover letter? So there's a question from Alma is uh, how important do you think, in your opinion, to have a cover letter in Berlin? Or it's it should be more like based on CV and CV is more important than a cover letter? I think if the cover letter is like obligatory in, during this application process, and sometimes it will be, then of course it's important. And that means that a recruiter or hiring managers or both read it. I would say a lot of the times I wouldn't read them because I just didn't have time. And I think a lot of recruiters are in this position, to be honest. But some of my hiring managers did. So sometimes, you know, like they would mention, oh, this person mentioned that in the, the cover letter. I'd be like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but I would say I don't find it very important unless... Again, it's an entry-level position. So if you are a graduate and there is a junior or level data scientist position, then typically cover letters would be something that the recruitment team would look at because there, you probably don't have that much experience to put in your CV. So they want to understand your motivations a bit more. But if it's a more like seasoned or more senior experience level positions, then unless it's necessary, like it says like there is a star and that this is like mandatory, I wouldn't put it. 
Yeah, I must confess as a hiring manager, I often take part as an interviewer or as a hiring manager in interviews. I also don't look at cover letters, to be honest. Yeah. So, <laughs> because I assume maybe a recruiter to, took a look. And sometimes I also try to avoid looking at CV, not to bias myself. So before the interview, I just talk to a candidate. And then after the interview, I look at the CV because I assume that already the CV screening happened by the recruiter yeah. or by somebody. And then I try not to look at the CV as well. But yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, because as I said earlier, right, about the photo, for instance, but there's so yeah. many other things people put on the CVs and like you, you can really sometimes bias without you even knowing. So already this person maybe was screened by a recruiter and you trust them and you know that this is probably the right candidate to talk to them. It's an interesting idea, yeah. Yeah, but probably for a recruiter, it's not uh, the best way of dealing with <laughs> CV screening, right? Not looking at CVs. Well, unless I mean, I mean, if we need your help, so like if it was like an, I would be on the fence about some profiles still, you know, and then I would ask the hiring manager. So then, yeah, I would ask, <laughs> I would ask you probably like, yeah, can you please look at the CV? But I think if it's like, you know, if I'm kind of quite confident and calibrated as a recruiter already, and, you know, I kind of know, okay, this candidate looks like good, then I think it would be fine that you don't look. And I think it's, again, a way to try to reduce bias a little bit, which I think is good. Do you also need to hire data analyst profiles? I haven't myself, but this was like at Zalando, at least at the time when I was there, it was a separate job family. But I, I do see that this is also quite becoming quite challenging. And I hear a lot of my colleagues and recruiters I work with who mentioned that it's a, sometimes a, really a struggle to find them as well. Yeah, there, there is a question from Amin. Do you have any tips for uh, those who are looking for data analyst jobs? Uh, no, I don't think so. Because again, it's like kind of like with data science title we discussed, sometimes data analysts can be also a little bit confusing from one company to another, because it could be even that there is no data scientist title, but actually data analysts do what data scientists would do in other companies. <laughs> so I think it would really like depend on the job description that you see. But yeah, I think I probably don't have that much information about that, mm -hmm. I'm afraid. Yeah, recruiting-wise, probably it's very similar, except the screening phase. Maybe you would look for different kind of keywords, different yeah. kind of uh, maybe responsibilities. But the rest of the process, I assume, would follow a similar, uh, yeah. at least from the point of view of a recruiter, would uh, follow similar steps, right? Exactly, yeah. And uh, what about uh, somebody having two bachelor degrees? So, for example, one in IT and one in account management. Do you think it's uh, a good thing? Would it make candidates stand out or not? Um, I think it would be interesting, but I'm not sure if it would be something that would kind of weigh the scales. Like, I think it's important that there is a technical, like that kind of technical degree, whether it's computer science or related to machine learning, is probably something I would look out for more. But yeah, if, if there is also at the same time another bachelor's degree in non-technical field, usually something interesting, like I would look at it, but it wouldn't kind of weigh the scales in one way or the other, I think. So it will, okay, yeah. interesting, but not more than that, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it could be a good thing, especially like, uh, depends again on the role, to be honest. So it really is a bunch of assumptions, right? Like, so if someone says account management experience, I may think like, oh, like maybe they're good at presenting and soft skills, like managing stakeholders. But then that's just an assumption. So then I'm not sure. I think I haven't been particularly paying attention to that. I have to be honest. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, there is a question from Radu. What is the most difficult part of hiring a data professional? For me, it was in the very beginning, it was the ambiguity about the titles. And I heard it from everyone. So the biggest difficulty was like, there was this, suddenly the data science title just exploded and just became like a thing. And everyone was putting that on their CVs, or at least it seemed to me on their profiles. Everyone wanted to do AI or wanted to do deep learning and like they would just put it everywhere. And then the companies would also want to say that they are AI driven and they use data, like deep learning and you know machine learning. So they would hire data scientists or hire people and give them data scientist title. And then I would hear from people, I would interview, like I was given this title, but I actually am a business analyst really. Like I have nothing to do with my degree, which was in the deep learning. And that's why they would want to move. So there was a lot of confusion. And then I had, my difficulty was like, how do I know if someone is really worked as a data scientist in terms of like what the current company I work for thinks about that. And then also having to explain to them, especially source candidates, like I remember we would go to like neural information processing conference with Zalando and a lot of people would come to our booth and it was me and my colleague from employer branding non-data scientist people. And it's like, why are you here? Like, what does Zalando do like with AI? And then, you know, people will be very suspicious and also candidates because they had those bad experiences with companies telling them, yes, you will be doing deep learning. And then they didn't. So I had to really become very good at explaining like, yes, this is what we use it. And these are the, the problems you will actually be solving. And this whole ambiguity between the disconnect between like the title and what it really means that was the biggest hurdle. And the second one was that there is a lot of competition. So like when people do what the right type of people that we wanted to hire would have many, many offers weekly, they would get bombarded with messages. And it was about how to convince them to join that particular company. And it was so competitive that typically it will always have like, you know, two or three other offers on the table with, you know, all different perks. So it's, oh, that's the second one, I think. <laughs> quite scarce talent I, I would say yeah so do recruiters consider portfolio projects from courses like i know courses from coursera like when you look at cvs and you look at projects do you think okay this person got a project from a coursera course yeah do you think it's a good thing or not depends on the hiring manager i think for some of them it would be like it's nice but again like with the the double bachelors it would still be about the experience that they did specifically with the specific methods or tools and how they implemented them and and then the, the experience itself. So I have seen a lot of people, especially doing the Coursera course of Andrew and G, I think. I see it and a lot of the CVs. And I think maybe if it adds value for the person and it helps them, even if it is to actually, you know, do the technical interviews sometimes and refresh your knowledge also, then that's great. It is more like a nice to have. Okay, yeah. so that will be certainly helpful for the person to pass the interview. It might be. Very likely that, at least I remember uh, the questions I got during the interview at Zelanda, some of these questions were covered in that course. So I also took that course and that course was quite useful for passing the interview. Exactly. But as a thing on your CV, maybe it's not the most important thing recruiters care about, right? Uh, no, unless it's really specifically said like, oh, actually someone has it. 
it's just never happened to me. So I don't want to speak for like everyone or every company, because I think there are some companies maybe that are more open to that, which is great then, and then definitely put it. And I think in general, just do put it on your CV. It's something you accomplished and something you did from beginning to end. That also says something like, you know, committing to doing that and putting in those hours. That's in itself, I think also something like a value added. So yes. Okay, thanks. Yeah, let's take an, the last one. So the question from Radu is, what advice would you give to data professionals to make a good impression on recruiters? It's not that difficult. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I don't know. I particularly enjoyed recruiting and interviewing data professionals after I got to know them. And I think that was, again, like through Zalando, I managed to like get to know a lot, lot of people and understand things they are excited about and things that excite them. So if you like want to impress a recruiter, I think try to answer the questions like as much as possible and like try to think about like you're speaking to someone who doesn't understand anything probably. And, and I don't want to like talk badly about recruiters. A lot of us do do try to understand machine learning and we, we can, you know, sometimes tell the difference, but yeah, just like try to explain as much as possible in words that, you know, like that are maybe not as technical, but also like, yeah, having that in mind, knowing that speaking to someone who's not a technical person. So sometimes, you know, I would speak to someone and I would ask a question that would be more open-ended questions, but they would answer with yes or no. And that's kind of, okay, I, I really need to know a little bit more to understand like, you know, your motivation or like why, you know, you're doing this or what you did. And so coming prepared for the interview, and that doesn't necessarily mean like knowing everything about the company you are interviewing it at, but prepared, like, you know, having some specific examples, as I said, about the behavior questions, they typically not very varied. They're usually about similar values. The company's someone who's a team player. So the questions would be around that. Or if you were more in a senior role in leadership, like, you know, how you led the team, how big was it? And like, can you give me an example of, you know, how would you grow someone? So try to ahead of the, that, try to think about like, you know, the interview will probably ask you questions with spec for specific examples. So try to come up with specific examples as opposed to hypothetical scenarios. Like what would I do you know, if I was in this situation? I think that's the kind of like a wishful thinking. So like, yeah. I mean, if you're really, of course, motivated and you're actually interested in joining the company that recruiter is representing, then yeah, then ask questions about the company or the culture because sometimes it could mean like if someone is not really asking those questions, I would sometimes wonder like, are they really interested in this company? Maybe they're just interviewing with two other and that's what they're waiting for. And this is kind of like, oh, okay, well, I do it because why not, <laughs> you know? And another thing is, I think it's also about the commitment. So sometimes if things change, of course, and as I said, also about the salary expectations, things change, but I think just explain. It's about like, I guess, respecting people's time. And I know like recruiters also can be quite difficult about that or not very good with that. So I understand that there are some recruiters who, you know, don't really keep you posted. They don't say what happened. You never hear from them after you were rejected. But if you like, you know, interviewing with many companies and some company makes you an offer and you like let the recruiter as soon as possible know that actually I don't want to interview with you anymore because I got this offer and that's fine. So you don't wasting, you're not wasting their time. And be open about that, that yes, I am interviewing. Like we are expecting that you will be interviewing with other companies. Like I'm not going to, you know, be offended that, oh no, like this person also is interviewing there. That's bad. Yeah. And then with the offers, I think once you accept an offer verbally with a given company, to me, that's like, okay, it's not of course legally binding, even though actually if we make an offer to you in most of European countries, it is legally binding. 
but I would expect then that you will honor that and that's something that's your commitment. But I, I did have sometimes instances when people would accept the offer or even sign the contract and then a week later say like, oh, I got this other offer now. Can we negotiate this like this whole thing again because I got more money or something else happened? And that to me is a kind of, that was a bit like, hmm, makes you wonder if the person really wants to be here. It's totally fine if you get more money from another company and you want to join them, just don't accept the offer before that. So different situations, but at least communicate as much as possible and explain the kind of the situation. I think we are, that's yeah, what I would do. Yeah. Thanks for the advice. How can people find you? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. So just <laughs> yes. put your name and you will be there. Okay, so thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for Thank sharing you. these stories, these tips. I also apologize that we didn't cover all the questions. So if you want your question to be answered, you can go to our Slack and ask these questions in our careers uh, channel. So you can do that. And uh, there are a lot of people who can also answer them. So thanks a lot again for joining us. And thanks everyone for joining us today and asking questions. Thanks for taking part in the discussion. And I wish everyone a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Bye.